and welcome to Behind the Glass Cabinet, a podcast where I, Ellie Armstrong, explore how science is constructed and displayed in museums. Each week, I'll be joined by a co-host for a conversation about a particular item you can go and see in a London museum. Together, we'll challenge, dissect and celebrate the stories the artefact could tell. My name is Lyman Gemberton. I am a third-year PhD candidate in social anthropology at the School of Oriental and African Studies in London, SOAS. Um, My field of specialty is the culture and society of modern Japan with a focus on gender. And for my master's thesis, I wrote about gender and identity in Hibakusha, A-bomb survivors in Nagasaki, 1945 to 1990. My current work, my thesis, PhD thesis work is on transgender and transsexual and gender variant communities in Japan, but all of my work focuses on gender, the body, medicalization and pathology in Japan. Okay, Uh, really interesting. So, uh, Lyman, today we're going to be talking about um, some objects that are at the Science Museum. Um, They're in the Making the Modern World Gallery, um, and they are two bowls that come from uh, the atomic bombs in uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Mm -hmm. Would you like to describe uh, one of them that we've been talking about? Yes. So, the bowl in question is a small blue and white glazed ceramic bowl uh, it would have been part of a set of dishes, often um, like a, a full dinner service or just four or five bowls of the same pattern. Um, probably a rice bowl or a pickle bowl. It's not big enough to be a ramen bowl. Uh, and the sort of fluted or scalloped edgings indicate that it's a it's a side dish bowl. So it's for rice or something like that. Um, it's extremely popular, this kind of design, this kind of bowl. Certainly in 1945, uh, even today, really across Japan, it's the kind of object that you could say pretty much every Japanese household has dishes like this. Um, And it's got an accretion of what looks like rock or sediment attached around the side and the outside of the bowl. Uh, It's been chipped a bit. And the reason that it has that kind of rocky edging Uh, is because the glaze melted in the intense heat of the A-bomb and it would have had debris getting stuck in the the melted glaze. When the A-bomb detonated over Hiroshima on the uh, 6th of August 1945 at 8.13, local time, yeah, 8.13, the surface temperature, well, the, the, the temperature in the mushroom cloud or at the point of detonation was equal to the surface temperature of the sun. So this object would not have been near the hypocenter. It it is mostly intact, so it was probably more than two or three kilometers away from the actual point of the explosion. Okay, and and we probably have this object because not much survived near the very center. Yes. Um, One of the problems, actually, of determining the total scale of destruction and especially the human death toll is that things and people which were closest to the epicenter were vaporized, and there is just nothing to be found. Um, So if you go to Hiroshima today and you're walking around downtown in the Peace Memorial Park, there are a bunch of different installations, there are monuments, there are cenotaphs, there are statues, and one of them is a mound, sort of a, it looks like a grassy mound under a roof, and what that is is... um, It is a mound that is made up of 
the remains of bodies which could not be properly identified. So people's ashes were basically just gathered and turfed over, and the bodies of victims become part of the memorial landscape in a way, which is, you know, it's, it's a very powerful yeah. reminder by its absence, you know, mm. uh, by both presence and absence is yeah. what I mean. The bodies are there incorporated into the landscape. But um, Hiroshima is on a river delta. It's on a very, very flat plain. And there are no real um, geographical or topographical interruptions to the shockwaves of the atomic bomb, which is why pretty much all of downtown Hiroshima was just leveled. Okay. So um, there are some things still standing near the hypocenter, the A-bomb dome, the very famous one. You may have seen the brick building with the um, the circular iron girder roof. That was the Hiroshima Central Municipal Office for Industry and Commerce, which was, it's a couple of hundred meters away from the hypocenter. Um, but as you can see from, you know, how it looks today, uh, most of that was blown away. The Just the structure remains. So finding objects from immediately downtown is extremely difficult, to put it mildly. So we have kind of in this in the space in the Making the Modern World Gallery in the Science mm -hmm. Museum, we have these two bowls yeah. and we have the picture yeah. of the mushroom cloud. That's right. And, and part of this is that it's just hard to have anything else to start those conversations yeah. in this space. Yes, definitely. It's it's certainly a question, isn't it, of what remains to be found, sorry, what remained to be found at the time, um, what remains to be found over seven decades later, mm. and what museums outside of Japan can access. Yeah. Um, so is, is lots of stuff still in Japan? Then? Yes, there's a great deal of... Um, there's a great deal of stuff in both the Hiroshima um, Hewa Hakubutsukan, the Peace Memorial Museum in Hiroshima, and in Nagasaki. And the families of Hibaksha often have articles that they've kept since the bombing. Um, actually, just this week, a Hibaksha, an A-bomb survivor living in Hiroshima, donated some artifacts to the Hiroshima Peace Museum, which belonged to his sister, who was... 16, I think, when she died in the A-bomb. Um, there was her lunchbox, I think, and maybe her watch and the dress she was wearing the day she died. Um, so he's he's held on to those as mementos of his sister. So new things certainly do come to light. Some of them are just kept quite understandably by the families for many, many years. Some of them are donated to museums on the death of the person who had been keeping them. Um, there are a few in other museums inside Japan. So um, the Ritsumeikan University Museum of World Peace in Kyoto has a piano that belonged to a 17-year-old girl called Kawamoto Akiko, who died at Hiroshima. Um, the piano was in the front room of her house, and the shockwave from the A-bomb blew in the front windows of the parlor, and there is glass embedded in the side of the piano that was facing the window. Uh, and it's it's still there. It was never uh, taken out. Her mother and her sister, who survived her, kept the piano for years and then donated it to the museum. So there are bits and pieces of A-bomb artifacts around Japan, but getting them, you know, negotiating with other curators and other museums outside of Japan can be quite difficult, I think. Yeah, and it's and it's particularly interesting that it's these this very 
archetypal mm. type of bowl in this mm. space. Could you maybe explore the idea of what this means for representing Japan in this space? Yes, it's interesting. And I think it ties into a larger pattern of the way Japan and Japanese culture, especially Japanese material cultures, are curated in British museums. I mean, the British Museum, capital B, capital M, but also in the VNA and also in the Ashmolean in Oxford or uh, elsewhere in, in the UK, because they tend, you know, most major museums do have a Japan gallery, but it's quite limited. Um, a lot of the time it'll be, you know, here's uh, three statues from the Jomon period, a couple of folding screens, five ukiyo-e prints, a suit of samurai armor, and some manga. Okay, that's it. That's Japan. Uh, which, you know, I'm, I'm not uh, saying that that's a terrible way to, to curate Japan. Again, it depends on what you have access to. It depends on what space you have. And giving an overview of the, you know, comprehensive overview of the thousands of years of Japanese history in its various forms is, it's a tall, tall ask, you know, it's a hard job. Um, but yes, one thing that British museums do generally tend to be very good at uh, depicting Japan through is pottery and dishes. And so this kind of domestic dishware, this kind of very comforting thing. You know, it's a rice bowl. It's the kind of thing that you eat dinner out of when you, you know, you've had a long day and you're tired. It, it represents what food dishes represent to people everywhere, nurturing, uh, nourishing, communal eating, family, friends, parties, etc. And so it's non-threatening in a sense is one of the best adjectives I can come up with to describe it, because in the museums at Hiroshima, certainly at Hiroshima, also at Nagasaki to a lesser extent, human body parts are on display. You know, there's a display case with people's fingernails in it at uh, Hiroshima and, you know, casts of um, the liver of an A-bomb survivor who had terrible liver cancer and, you know, hair and... Uh, there is a whole other discussion to be had on that, on whether and how to curate the bodies of, well, human bodies in general, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so there are arguments, I think, to be made on both sides. Do you really need the bodies, you know, bodies divorced from themselves, body, pieces of bodies, yeah. synecdoches of bodies? Do you really need that to bring home the full horror of what happens to the body after a nuclear strike? Mm -hmm. um, because there are, there are people who would say, Yes, you do, because just presenting the A-bomb as if it was a danger to property rather than yeah. fully confronting what it did to civilians mm. years and years and years after the bomb is um, it's intellectually dishonest or it's trying to minimize the A-bomb. It's trying to ignore the human cost. Mm. Um, and there are, you know... There are people who would argue the opposite, that putting bodies or parts of bodies on display is just shock value, that it's unnecessary and it's undignified. And I think there are strong arguments for both. Mm -hmm. It's I do think that the choice of the bowl was deliberate um, because it is one of the least, honestly, the least upsetting things you could put in an A-bomb gallery. Yeah. Uh, there are some horrible, horrible things in both Nagasaki and Hiroshima that are out on general display. And 
even things that aren't distressing out of context become distressing in the context of the A-bomb gallery. So, for example, at Nagasaki, um, one of the buildings closest to the hypocenter was an elementary school called Shiroyama Elementary School. And the building was mostly demolished by the force of the A-bomb, but one of the things that is on display at Nagasaki and has its own display case is a set of wooden stairs, you know, shallow uh, wooden steps, little staircase that originally led up from the ground floor at the elementary school to the cafeteria. And they're very, they're sort of wide and shallow. They got um, long, long feet and short treads, which would be easy for children to run up and down multiple times a day. And so that's not distressing, you know, it's not covered in blood or it's not fingernails in a, I'm sorry, I keep mentioning the fingernails, <laughs> but I may never get over them. Um, I think that's fair enough. Yeah, it's not something that would strike terror into the heart of the onlooker just by looking at it, but seeing it in its case. And it, it's positioned so that if you're standing in front of the display case, you're facing up the stairs and they just lead away to nowhere. And um, thinking about what that represents and what was lost and specifically who was lost becomes more upsetting and more frightening the longer you think about it, really. Because uh, I guess that's like really interesting in the idea of this bowl being so um, a perm like permeative in society. Yeah. Like That bowl could have been anyone, but yeah. also simultaneously as kind of no one's. Yeah. So we don't have to, in the science museum space, like yeah. necessarily specifically mm -hmm. engage with thinking about elementary school children yeah. or, um, you know, groups of people in particular spaces. Yeah, definitely. In a way that maybe brought home in these museums mm -hmm. in Japan more. Yes. And one thing that both of the A-bomb museums do, they focus on the broad sort of destruction and upheaval, but they're also very, very good at emphasizing personal narratives and the personal dignity of both survivors and the people who were lost. So, for example, in the Ritsumeikan Peace Museum, Kawamoto Akiko's piano is not, you can't sort of turn your face away from what brought it there. You can't get away from the fact that it was owned by a young woman who died a terrible, terrible death, you know. Um, or um, there's a rosary in the Nagasaki Atomic Bomb Museum, which belonged to a woman called um, Nagai Maria Midori, who came from an uh, old Catholic family in Nagasaki. And uh, she was at Urakami Cathedral hearing, um, going to confession uh, the morning of the 9th of uh, August. Uh, and she died in the cathedral, uh, and her her body was never found. Her ashes were not recoverable. So there is a good mix within Japan of broad context um, and individual sort of punctuations of suffering because the numbers of the atomic strikes are woozily unbelievable. Uh, Approximately 150,000 people died in the first four months at Hiroshima alone. Um, of those, about half died on the first day. About half of those died probably within two or three hours of the bomb strike. That's 70,000 people dead, you know, in or thereabouts in the space of a few hours, which is just mind-boggling to mm. contemplate. Um the scale of the deaths of people who died as a result of both bomb strikes 
is probably higher end estimate about 300,000 people, okay. which, you know, set against the backdrop of the Holocaust and all of the other sort of mass deaths that were occurring at the time, seems both like a larger and a smaller number than people expect. Mm -hmm. um, but yes, these sort of these individual, the bull is, it's not, in the Science Museum, is not attributed to a person or to a, a home. And it's it's just sort of presented as if, you know, Oh, well, somebody was walking around in the rubble, picked this up out of a house. Guess it's an A-bomb artifact now. Um, and it's interesting yeah. that it's so characteristically Japanese because, yeah. I mean, the rosary is mm -hmm. not what I would necessarily think of as being, you know, in a V&A type mm. characteristic Japanese gallery. Yeah. So how much do you think that we collapse this complex identity of places like Nagasaki and Hiroshima that have these alternative stories into a single monolithic Japanese mm -hmm. story in this science museum with this bowl. Yes, I think I think that is a really, really interesting question that is about to spawn about 15 fractal answers, <laughs> so bear with me. Um, anytime you deal with the A-bombs, you have multiple conflicting equally valid, equally necessary, equally urgent stories to be told about it. Because we can talk about nuclear war in the abstract, you know, um, ask me about how much I hated threads, you know, and all of the sort of post-war imaginings of what nuclear war would look like in an unspecified conflict between Britain and the Soviet Union, as was, for example, like the war game or like threads or anything like that. But when we want to talk about nuclear war in the actual non-abstract case, the only time it's ever been used is in Japan. Um, it is a phenomenon of two cities, two places, two times and dates. And so on the one hand, yes, there is a very definite objective way to explain it. The United States dropped two atomic bombs on Japan. And so you can say with some validity, you know, the United States was the aggressor, Japan was the victim, which also immediately brings up the problem that Japan, to many people in East Asia and Southeast Asia from 1901 onwards, before that, but 1901 specifically onwards, uh, with the advent of the Japanese annexation and colonialization of Korea, Japan was the aggressor and did crimes against humanity uh, and, you know, enslaved, tortured, raped, murdered, massacred, uh, conscripted into forced labor, hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people. Um, and so you have the sort of who is the aggressor and who is the victim, who gets sympathy, who gets to elide the consequences of their actions is one thing to consider uh, on a, a sort of geopolitical scale, mm -hmm. countries as actors. And then within Hiroshima and Nagasaki themselves, there are many different demographics of people who were affected by the A-bomb. So, for example, in Nagasaki, uh, the first Christians in Japan arrived in 16... 1604, St. Francis Xavier and some Portuguese Jesuit companions, and they landed at Nagasaki. And so that was the entry point for Christianity into Japan. 
and um, Kyushu, the southernmost island of Japan, which is where Nagasaki is, uh, was historically the first and most Christian region of Japan. So there have been um, Catholic communities in Nagasaki for, oh gosh, about 400 years now. Um, they were persecuted very badly by the shogunate, uh, 17th to 19th centuries, and became a sort of very unique form of Christianity called um, Kakure Kurishitan, hidden Christians. Um, and then when Christianity was re-legalized at the end of the 19th century in Japan, some reverted to being full Catholic in communion with the Roman Catholic Church, and some of them just said, no, we're, we're going to stay Kakure Kurishitan. So there are longstanding Nagasaki Catholic communities. There are also people who converted to Christianity in Hiroshima, people who had maybe gone to seminary in America, or people who had been converted. Um, John Hersey's book, Hiroshima, follows a couple of people in, in Hiroshima, um, one of whom, the Reverend uh, Tanimoto Kiyoshi, was a, oh, what was he? he was Presbyterian, I think, um, Protestant minister who trained in America, and uh, some German Jesuits who were there as part of a German Jesuit mission in the city. So there were religious minorities who are not thought of as, you know, the first religious community, what you think about when you think about Japan. Um, also a great deal of Korean and Chinese people living in both Hiroshima and Nagasaki, many of whom were forcibly brought to Japan as conscripted labor. Uh, some of them came from families which had been living in Japan beforehand because Japan had colonized Korea at that point for almost half a century. So some people had come voluntarily or their parents had come to Japan, uh, but many of them were, were slave labor. Um, and I was reviewing my notes before I came here, actually, and uh, it's considered that up to a full tenth of the people who died at Hiroshima were Korean. About 20,000, 30,000 people who died were Korean. Uh, but the Korean memorial, the, the cenotaph to the Korean victims of the A-bomb in Hiroshima was not installed anywhere in the city until 1967. And when it was first, when the money was first raised for it to be built, the board of directors of the Peace Park actually said, you're not allowed to put it within the boundaries of the Peace Park proper. Uh, it has to be outside. Because? People are very circumspect about saying why, but there is a lot of anti-Korean sentiment mm -hmm. at the time and today in Japan. And it was a political decision mm -hmm. to downplay the, um, downplay the deaths of uh, Korean people mm -hmm. uh, in the A-bomb. It was not until... 1999, that the Korean cenotaph was actually brought inside the grounds of um, inside the grounds of the Peace Peace Park, which is where it is now. I mean, there there was another reason that the Korean cenotaph was put outside the Peace Park. It was because one of the last heirs of the Korean royal family, uh, Prince Liu, uh, died in Hiroshima. He was on one of the bridges. Uh, crossing the river delta when the bomb dropped. And so he died there. I think his body was later repatriated to Korea. But that became a focal point and a gathering point for Korean survivors. So those are all 
you know, again, sort of mm. incredibly inside baseball politics being played with who gets to be in the official memorial zone and who has to stay outside, who might want to stay outside, who might want to be mm. inside the the ground. So, yes, it's... So, it's, it's, yeah, really it, complex idea. Yeah. So it's sort of who counts, who has the most compelling claim on the narrative, whose suffering is remembered and whose suffering is forgotten. Science museums love to portray themselves as apolitical, objective spaces that just, you know, very sort of Columbo-esque, just the facts, ma'am. And the, the A-bomb is not something that can be depoliticized at all ever just by mm. its nature because we don't you know we don't use nuclear bombs for anything else than dropping on people to kill them mm. there is no there's no sort of um civilian usage for an a-bomb is there <laughs> fortunately yeah so you know nuclear power being a completely different uh, also often contested subset of um using nuclear power as mm. a force for for human progress but the decision to make, hoard, stockpile, and use A-bombs mm. is only ever um, in a wartime context. Yeah. And so it is a it is a political decision mm. that is made to deploy or not to deploy or if Donald Trump has a bad day and, it, you know. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, so that, you know, in a sense, the, what the Science Museum is doing in, in making the modern age is just we should probably recognize that the A-bomb was a thing that happened, but mm -hmm. here is the smallest, least space-occupying, least threatening, mm -hmm. least disturbing thing yeah, that we can find to grudgingly – well, grudgingly is me editorializing. <laughs> you don't have to put that in the podcast <laughs> if you don't want to. Um, you know, that's possibly an uncharitable way of looking at it, but – it's a, it's a, I yeah. guess it's a, an easy way of, yeah. of uh, putting that – in without mm. having to grapple with some of these complexities. Yes. It gives them, uh, by having a, an object that is so non-related mm -hmm. to any particular part mm -hmm. of uh, an identity about Japan, mm -hmm. beyond being kind of so ubiquitous mm -hmm. that it, it kind of doesn't have a meaning, mm -hmm. that we don't have to face things like the death. Yeah. And we don't have to face things like what happens to people after being, yeah. you know, uh, suffering mm -hmm. an atomic bomb and in the case of the person's liver that you were talking mm -hmm. about, you know, we don't see any of those tensions yeah. with the the, disab the mm -hmm. disability that comes mm -hmm. about as a result. We don't see any of the death. Mm -hmm. um, and it's quite, for me, I mean, it's quite interesting to think about like how those more subtle narratives mm -hmm. um, in terms of the access for care or mm -hmm. for uh, remembrance mm -hmm. are played out as well as a result of this science. Yeah, it's, you know, I, I also think that um, Japanese pottery and East Asian pottery in general, but often this kind of Japanese pottery is quite popular in Britain. So it is a good, in a sense, I don't want to sound relentlessly critical of the way that um, the Science Museum chooses to stage its A-bomb exhibition. It is a good entry point, I think, uh, because it is something that will have sort of a shock of recognition to a lot of visitors to the museum to say, oh, I, you know, I have bowls like that. My grandmother has bowls like that. This is familiar. It is something I might reasonably have in my home. And that does, I think, serve to to pull people closer. 
But yes, it's the the hidden costs of the A bomb rippled forward in time to a great extent. Uh, the one of the most upsetting things about the A bomb, and I say that as if there's only a few things to choose from that are upsetting about the A bomb, but uh, Hibaksha are entitled to subsidized medical care, specifically as part of their status as as A bomb afflicted people. That did not come through until about 1983. So there were no legal protections for Hibaksha. There were no workplace protections. There was no A-bomb-specific subsidized medical care. Um, It was totally legal for people to either refuse to hire Hibaksha outright or fire them if it was known that they were A-bomb survivors because... The calculus was that they would take too much time off. They would be too sick to work, and it would be cheaper and easier to replace them with people who weren't hibaksha. Um, For a lot of women in Japan at that time, especially middle class and upper class women, marriage was really your career. You know, it was your, your road to financial stability. And so a lot of women who had been engaged to be married, maybe to men who were in the Imperial Army, for example, or men who had been mobilized for work service elsewhere, uh, who survived the A-bomb would often find their engagements broken off by their prospective husband's family because nobody wanted their son to marry a woman with A-bomb sickness. Um, there's a the sort of the, the classic novel on the A-bomb by Ibize Masiji. It's called um, Black Rain, Kurayame. And the it's a lightly fictionalized plot of an elderly man in a village near Hiroshima writing his diary of and his memoirs of what he saw after the A-bomb. But his granddaughter, granddaughter? Granddaughter, Yasuko, the, the sort of plot of the novel such as it is revolves around all of Yasuko's engagements getting broken as soon as people get wind that she's an A-bomb survivor, um, which happened to a lot of people. It, it was the sort of the lack of care shown to people. It's in some ways reminiscent of how Holocaust survivors were treated after the war by people who couldn't deal with the scope of the the trauma they'd been through or could not deal with what they as human beings represented about a political regime or about the ways their country had betrayed them or about the ways that, you know, the war had been lost, uh, the, their own sufferings outside of the A-bomb or outside of the Holocaust, trying to deal with your own post-war trauma and take on and honor the trauma of people who suffered so terribly. You know, that's a that's a generous way of looking at it. Um, the harsh way would be to say, you know, they were living survivors of a war that was lost in a very humiliating and very punishing way. So trying to find support, trying to find a way to survive and to thrive Mm -hmm. afterwards was a a topic of great dissent for a lot of people sort of within Hibaksha communities as well. Um, The the poet Setoguchi Chie was a school teacher, middle school teacher and writer in Nagasaki. And she wrote some wonderful, terrible, but wonderful tanka, which are a form of Japanese traditional poem about the A-bomb. And one of them ends, she's criticizing an unnamed second person. She says, 
you begged tobacco from the occupation forces. You survived the war in order to be lazy. Mm. Or um, another one, I think from Atomic Field, uh, she, she starts the poem with the line, a tangle of piano wire in the burnt out field is all that remains of my friend. And then the last lines of the poem are, the sixth anniversary of my friend's death is coming. She hanged herself because of A-bomb disease. So sort of trying to find solidarity when the people around you who could understand were dying mm. was, and when your disease was still badly you know, not understood, um, even by the medical professionals who tried very hard to help you, uh, was very difficult. But there are there are stories of solidarity and of survival. Mm. And the terms in which people set their own survival after the war is amazing. Um, the Nagasaki Testimonial Society has a source book in English of first-person narratives of the A-bomb. It's called Voices of the A-bomb Survivors. And there are a couple uh, testimonials in there by people who were teenage girls or young women in the war, uh, one of them, Kuma Hisoko, was the youngest daughter, I think, of a widowed father. There were three or four daughters. Uh, and she talks about her father's devotion in finding her after the war. She said he ran into the downtown area through fire and through debris to find her. And uh, she talks about him just nourishing her, I guess, after the war. Her hair fell out after she was exposed to the bomb. And she said, we heard that rubbing coarse salt into the scalp could uh, encourage hair regrowth. So my father rubbed my head with rock salt every night until I felt like I was going to become a pickle. <laughs> she said, after my hair, after about six months, my hair began to grow back in. And my father and I were so happy we cried, you know. Yeah. So... Um, Hayashi Kyoko, who was also an A-bomb survivor and wrote about uh, wrote about her experiences and a lot of stuff about gender uh, and womanhood in the wake of the A-bomb, also wrote about female friendships, wrote about the gendered peculiarities of being a female A-bomb survivor, which are often overlooked in the narrative, I think. Um what was there's um, something particular in one of her? Oh yeah, she was saying that um, a lot of the the sort of body discourse around hibaksha is other people's pathological, pathologizing, medicalized, or sort of disgusted slash titillated view of what their bodies were or were imagined to be, you know. Um, the idea that people who had been affected by the A-bomb would give birth to, like, hideous mutant radiation babies. Um, and she talks about the onset of menstruation, actually, because she was 14, 13 or 14 um, in 1945. And a lot of people who were teenage girls during the bombing would use their own internal markers of their body and their recovery in a way that don't get talked about by male commentators very mm -hmm. often, for example. So Hayashi Kyoko said, you know, my menstruation reassured me. Mm -hmm. um, beginning my first period was a sign to me that I would 
withstand what had happened to me. Um, Kimahisako saying that when her hair grew back, she knew she would recover. And that's, you know, the voices of teenage girls are historically not really taken seriously in a lot of places. Mm -hmm. And for people to reject medicalized ideas of what a hibaksha body should be or do or behave like and to say, no, this is this is my yardstick for recovery. This is what I feel was the turning point that when I knew I would be okay. And I think this is, is again very powerful. Yeah. And I'm just thinking about in the gallery space, mm -hmm. this this uh, object sits really close to some um, cameras from the Vietnam yeah. War. And yeah. they've got the the very uh, iconic picture of the Agent Orange child. Yeah. And so I think I guess maybe what might be raised is that these are very traumatic images yeah. of of people who are surviving the yeah. A bomb and mm -hmm. and those kind of and that and and perhaps that's a reason why we don't include those images and that we select yeah. this mushroom cloud instead. Yeah. But you know, in in argument against that, mm -hmm. we have these images of young children yeah. from the Vietnam War, and yeah. we're unafraid about having those mm -hmm. in that space. And so, like, it's it's I guess interesting that this maybe the scale or yeah. for some reason it's different mm -hmm. it feels like it, the choice is different with the atomic bomb yes that is really really interesting as a layout decision mm. to be made in that gallery i haven't been to see it personally um recently at least but I don't even think that, you know, standing in that room, I would be able to give you mm. a decent explanation for why images of suffering children are indicative of one tragedy mm. and not of the other. I mm. mean, the the mushroom cloud is an iconic and striking visual shorthand mm. uh, for nuclear war. It looks unearthly. It looks otherworldly. And... It, yeah, there is something about it as a as a, an image of yeah. conflict. Yeah, it looks apocalyptic, uh, which you know it is. Uh, <laughs> I think actually, you know, now that I've I just said that I wouldn't be able to give you an explanation. Thinking again about politics in the space of the gallery, and thinking about the A bomb as um, as a as a tool of ending a conflict, mm. um, you know the sort of justification given for dropping the bomb was that it ended the conflict in Japan before more people could die. Mm. You know, much the same justification was used in Vietnam. We had to destroy the village in order to save it. But you hear people say sometimes that the Second World War was the last conflict that America could feel really good about. You mm. know, it was the last sort of unambiguously heroic conflict in a sense. Um, and in the, the American psyche. Yeah. And in the British psyche as well, I think, because the Nazis were evil. They were unambiguously evil. What Imperial Japan was doing in East and Southeast Asia was evil. Um, they could not be, these actions could not be tolerated to be continued, you know. Um, they, although I say that as if, you know, liberating the death camps was a priority. Anyway, uh, but it tarnishes the narrative, I think, of the Second World War being a justified war that was won by a unilateral good side against a unilateral evil. If those if, images are yeah. shown. And I think by the time the Vietnam War rolled around, especially because it was a humiliating disaster and defeat for America, um, 
we were much more the Anglophone world, America, and to a lesser extent Britain, but mostly America, were much more willing to talk about the human costs of chemical warfare, biological warfare, and nuclear warfare. And um, so the, the Vietnam War was hugely unpopular mm. at home and abroad. Uh, and the leakage, leakage, I guess, not in the sense of like WikiLeaks or, or releasing cables, a lot of the images that we have of the Vietnam War were taken by people with press credentials who were working for things like the Associated Press um, or similar, I don't know if the AP was around then, but um, who were working for news, news bureaus back in America. But I say leaks in the sense of leaks in the narrative that the war that was being fought was justified or mm. was moral or was something that urgently necessitated the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people, both American military personnel and Vietnamese civilians. Um, and I think the idea that admitting and accepting that nuclear war is a crime against humanity brings up questions about the goodness and morality and righteousness of the allied actions during the Second World War that we don't really want to talk about today because the past is never really past. You know, it's sort of, yeah, sure, the Second World War is slowly but surely edging out of living memory, but... Yeah, we get the, you know, the follow-ups. Yeah, it's it's never gone away. There's um, There's a town in Tennessee called uh, Oak Ridge, and it was a major industrial and processing uh, community in the 1940s. And every year there's a festival at Oak Ridge called the Secret City Festival. It's in July. There's a, like a three-day lineup of bands and music and fun municipal events, and it's a big tourist draw, and people come from all over, and you bring your kids, and it's got a nice like municipal, municipal hometown festival uh, kind of feel. And what they're celebrating in the Secret Histories Festival is that Oak Ridge uh, was the site of the plutonium processing plant where uh, plutonium was refined and then shipped out to Alamogordo and then to Tinian Island and then was dropped on Nagasaki where it killed about 80,000 people. So, you know, that's another one of the conflicting narratives we were talking about earlier is the story of the A-bomb, uh, you know, a, a source of civic pride, a sense that the small town in Tennessee helped to defeat a great moral evil, that the people who worked at the plant um, were part of the greatest generation who saw off the Nazis and made the world safe for democracy. Mm. Or is it, you know, the, the other yearly memorial where the survivors and descendants of the people that plutonium killed released soul boats on the river at Nagasaki. Like, how do you put that in a single gallery space, right? I know I keep bringing us out at the gallery and you keep sort of very gably bringing yeah. us back into the gallery. <laughs> um, but it's just because, you know, the A-bomb expands. It gets like radiation. It gets everywhere. And you sort of mm -hmm. trying to keep it within a gallery a space, you feel not to get too poetic, but you feel sort of all of the the people crowding in around you because everyone mm. everyone has a terribly conflicted, terribly personal 
narrative about it. And yeah. you can't discount one group suffering in favor of another. You know, it would be it would be very, very wrong to say that any one group of people suffering was more important or more worthy of being erased, for example, uh, than another person's, especially when you're looking at groups that had historic power imbalances and still do in Japan, like uh, resident Korean populations. If somebody's been sidelined out of the narrative for so long, so strongly already, mm -hmm. you know, you... You also feel, as a Western A-bomb scholar, certainly I do, that you've walked into the middle of a fight that people have been having for centuries. Mm. And you're, um, you try to be as expansive as you can in your descriptions of what happened. But it's a very, it's a very complicated thing to look at. And you just sort of I feel like you're, you know, looking at the A-bomb, your eye kind of slips away from it because of the... Just, you know, you try to focus on something and something else comes up and it's still so unsettled. Yeah. Years and years later, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's just impossible to sort of funnel down to a point and yet that's what we try to do. We try to take all of this suffering and all of this pain and all of this destruction and contestation and politicization and grief and everything and you know, sort of ball it up in your hands until it forms into a blue and white bowl yeah. with dirt accretions on it and put it in a gallery and say, there you go. Yeah, this is part of this our... This is Hiroshima. Yeah, this is part of our modern yeah. scientific world, but not something we can explore yeah. in the way that we might want to. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. <laughs> Thank you. Um, just quickly, would you like to explore how you got into looking at the atomic bomb? Yes. So, um, in 2013, uh, I lived in Japan as a little kid, 1996 to 97, in the other end of the country, very far away from either Hiroshima or Nagasaki. And I returned to Japan for the first time as an adult in 2013. I just finished undergrad and I needed to be as far away from Oxford as I could be at that point, which is the other side of the planet. So <laughs> Oxford well. works out. Um, I did a month's language and cultural exchange study in Kyoto and then I took a road trip solo around Japan via train for another two weeks. And my first stop was Nagasaki and then Hiroshima and then various other points. And if you're in Nagasaki and Hiroshima, you, you have to go to the A-bomb museum. That's just what you do when you're there. Uh, and I hadn't really known very much about the A-bomb to that point. It's not something that gets taught very much in British schools. Certainly in my school, we did a whole term on the Second World War, and then it was two sentences about uh, Nagasaki and Hiroshima, where it was sort of, and then the A-bombs were dropped on Japan, but they deserved it, so that was okay. Anyway, the 50s. Um, so I was walking around the A-bomb museums and I was absolutely fascinated in a sort of, you know, the old fashioned form of the word or meaning of the word fascination where it compels you. Not that it's sort of, oh my God, this is so cool, but more mm -hmm. sort of, I cannot look away. Uh, and it, um, it really struck me just how much time was out of sequence. And how much, you know, there's a there's a wall, there's a section of whitewashed wall from somebody's house, I think, in Nagasaki, 
which has black rain streaks on it. And I was standing in front of it thinking, why am I so unnerved by this when there are, again, human fingernails? Uh, and it's because rain comes and goes on the same day, pretty much. You know, if something is wet from rain one day, you expect it to be dry the next. And 70-odd years later, there it was again. You know, this one object, which was in this one place on this one day, is marked like that forever. And I was about to start an MA in anthropology at that point, and I knew I wanted to write about Japan, and I didn't want to write about, you know, um, salarymen or the economic bubble or anime, which are sort of <laughs> the three uh, oversaturated topics for Japanese anthropology. So I decided to write about historical anthropology uh, and about gender and the A-bomb because there is a bunch of interesting stuff that just isn't brought up in A-bomb narratives more generally. Um, I also had the great uh, fortune at that time to talk to people who were also working on stuff about the A-bomb that I hadn't considered. I knew somebody who was working on A-bomb music and somebody else who was writing about like the romance of the ruins and the appeal of ruined sites in Japanese tourism and dark tourism, disaster tourism, which is um, tourism and pilgrimage to sites of disaster or tragedy, which is a subfield in anthropology more generally. Uh, and so it was sort of the confluence of talking to interesting people at the right time and it sort of hit all of my interests, which are 20th century Japanese history, the history of the nuclear period more generally, gender, medical anthropology, and studies of the body and cultural context. So it's sort of a, a perfect storm of all of my major research interests. And because I also think the, the sort of thought that I want to end on really is one of the reasons that I wrote about the A-bomb and which um, uh, one of the reasons I will certainly return to it in the future after finishing my current dissertation is that sometimes I worry that people think nuclear war wasn't really so bad, which sounds like a shocking thing to say. But what I mean by that is the half-lives of the fallout in both Hiroshima and Nagasaki were remarkably short. Um, the first generation of babies born after the A-bomb, sort of within the, the sort of 1945 to 1955, maybe 1960, did have radiation, some radiation side effects. The second generation, people our age, you know, millennials or Gen Xers born in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, are no more likely to have radiation-related cancers or radiation defects than anybody else born anywhere else. Um, and, you know, the cities bounced back with a remarkable quickness. And, you know, you can go to Nagasaki today and have delicious food sitting on Dejima Wharf looking out at the Pacific and enjoying the ocean view. And you could almost not know that something so terrible had happened there. And... I think that because that happened, because of the remarkable renaissance of both the cities and the the resilience of their people, people think that nuclear war would be kind of bad, but only really for the people it happened to. And I think um, 
an awareness of the danger that nuclear weapons signal is is something that we should all think about, really, that we should all be concerned about, that we should all be involved in working towards uh, a fully denuclearized world. There, you know, and I, I don't really want to end on a doom note there because, um, you know, if you take people through a journey of objectively distressing and terrible things, like we've just been talking about, uh, you, it's it's sort of irresponsible, I think, to just leave them there in the depths of, of terrible emotion and to say the the story of the A-bombs and the story of the people who survived them and the story of the, the international, the feminist, the, uh, the pacifist, socialist uh, resistance to nuclear war and um, environmentalist protests after Fukushima, which still go on to this day in Japan, provide an interesting and hopeful counterbalance to the terrors of nuclear war. And I, it's a really interesting topic. Um, and I would really recommend anybody who is interested in this to, to look that up as well and to know that there are stories of solidarity and resistance and a change for a better future that came out of this. And to take the bowl, this bowl is your starting point, and fill it up with all of the other things that there are to know. Awesome. Thank you so much, Lyman. This has been fantastic. It's been great. Thank you. Um, do you have anything that you would like people to know about that you're doing in the near future? Yes, I will be appearing um, in a short film, a short documentary interview film on the future of trans identity and the future of gender in the uh, the Barbican's Transpose event this December. I will not be there in person. I will still be in Japan, unfortunately. But um, if you want to hear me further, for some reason, talking about something slightly different, uh, I will be appearing there. Uh, that's run by musician and activist C.N. Lester, who, disclosure, is a friend of mine. Um, so, nepotism, hooray. <laughs> uh, other than that, I haven't put much of my work up on the internet because of who I am as a person, which is to say disorganized. But um, the Ox Torch, uh, uh, Oxford University Queer Studies Network, uh, blog does have one of my essays on it, and it's called No Reason to Fear Her Karma, Gender Variance in Japanese Culture and Society. So if you'd like to get a feel for what my work is like when I'm not writing about the A-bomb, or if you'd like to hear about um, why demons converting to Buddhism can maybe make you not trans anymore in medieval Kyoto, you should uh, look that up. That is, again, the Oxford University Queer Studies Network group blog and um, hoping to have some more stuff up in the future. I'll keep you posted. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you so much, Lyman. No problem. And that's it for this episode of Behind the Glass Cabinet. Thanks to Nicolette Chin, my editor and producer. Thanks to Sam Lee, the composer for the track of this podcast. And thank you to the University College of London Department for Culture and the Department for Science and Technology Studies, without whom this podcast would not have been possible. I've been Ellie Armstrong. You can find me online at, at Ellie the Element. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.